Hey everyone, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. In Folk Stories, I have in-depth conversations with awesome people. We talk about where they come from, how they got here, what they do, and the stories that they have to share. Today, my guest is H.B. Siegel, Prime Minister of Ideas at Amazon. H.B. is one of a very select group of people who have been at Amazon now for almost two decades. In that time, HP has been the director of media technologies. HP has been the CTO of IMDb, which is a subsidiary of Amazon. And HP also helped launch the search inside the book feature for Kindle. HB graduated with degrees in computer science and electrical engineering with a focus in computer graphics. Prior to Amazon, HB has worked in a series of animation-related companies, including Wavefront, Industrial Light and Magic, and Pixar. At Wavefront, HB helped develop what is now known as Maya, a premier 3D animation platform which is used to develop animations for both video games and movies. At Industrial Light and Magic, HB worked on creating special effects for now iconic film series such as Star Wars and Men in Black. This is actually my second time talking to HB. The first time we had a conversation was for an internal podcast, which I run at Amazon. HB's been good enough to come on the show again and do another gun around for this public version of this podcast. We also happen to intersect both professionally and outside of work. I've worked with HB and his current team, the Department of Ideas, for over a year. And outside of Amazon, HB sits on the board of Unexpected Productions, which is an improv theater in Pike Place, Seattle, where I happen to perform. As you'll be able to tell in this conversation, HB is very serious all the time, and everything he says should be taken at face value. At least, this is what I imagine HB will say the first time you meet him, and as you'll very soon be able to tell in our conversation, that should not at all be taken at face value, because HB is a professional prankster and trickster, and is one of those people that just reminds me not to take things seriously all the time. I feel fortunate to have been able to work with him, and I'm super excited to be able to share some of his stories with all of you today. In today's conversation, we'll talk about doing pranks and not living life on automatic. We'll talk about HB's current work and past goals at Industrial Light and Magic and Wavefront, and we'll talk about investing in ideas versus people and figuring out good ideas as well as good people from bad ones. And now, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with H.B. Siegel. H.B., welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. I'd like to start off by looking back at your career. You've done so many different things. Um, you worked in Kindle, you worked on IMDb, you worked in special effects, you worked with Sudi Gundering. If... I were to meet you at a cocktail party. How would you introduce yourself? Uh, I actually usually don't kick off a conversation related to what we do for a living. Uh, it would be pretty rare that I would introduce the subject directly. 
um, I kind of subscribe to the theory that uh, what people do with their spare time is much more related to who they are and what their passions and goals are. Uh, so that being said, I don't avoid the subject. And uh, if somebody asks me what I do, I'll talk about my work most recently, uh, running a group at Amazon called the Department of Ideas, uh, seeking out new big ideas for businesses and goals that Amazon can go into. Uh, the, I'll also be happy to talk about my history. Sometimes I'll meet people who are passionate about movies and special effects and computer graphics, uh, especially when I go to conferences related to uh, virtual reality uh, and computer graphics. A lot of times the history of some of my previous Amazon work uh, comes up. So you started off originally um, in computer graphics. I believe that's what you got your degree in. And early on, you worked in Industrial Light and Magic, which is a very well-known now um, special effects uh, company. And you also worked on the original Star Wars. When you were doing that at the time, did you have the feeling that this was going to be something big, or was it just another project? Uh not that old, Kevin. I didn't work on the original Star Wars, which was 1978. Apologies, I'll take that <laughs> I was around Industrial Light and Magic when uh, they were working on the director's cuts of the original Star Wars films, uh, 4, 5, and 6, and also on the beginnings of episodes 1, 2, and 3. And so my role, uh, they overlap somewhat. And, uh, you know, I, I worked extensively on episode 1, Phantom Menace, at the time. It came out. When you were working on Phantom Menace and you were working on special effects, what kind of work were you doing? Was it lightsabers? Was it uh, sparks, spaceships? Uh, we would end up doing like all that stuff. So uh, the days were super fun and super weird until you've, uh, like working on a film like Mars Attacks, until you've had a meeting uh, deciding whether or not the goop that comes out of a Martian's head when it explodes is green or blue. I don't think you've really done uh, a morning meeting. Uh, so uh, in terms of uh, Star Wars in those films, uh, we were running um, the technical organization. So my group composed of all the software developers and uh, some of the support for the tools for the technical directors. And we would get uh, scripts that would suggest that uh, we would need to kind of either create a new technology or improve upon existing technology. Maybe it was the ability to add hair or fur or to create a new type of visual uh, for uh, for a film, or sometimes it was hard what we called hard body animation, which was uh, spaceships or things that were rigid. And uh, the visual effects supervisors and uh, production leads would go through the scripts and try to figure out what areas would take on each of the subsets of effects. Sometimes, even back then, um, a lot of the effects were moving toward computer graphics and computer animation. Uh, but there were still cases where we would use what was uh, practical effects and actually physically build models, uh, usually things related to rigid body animations like spaceships, and often they could be combined together. So as uh, my uh, part of the job was to help lead the efforts to figure out um, how to actually create the effects that might not be able to be done through practical effects or that we preferred to do for cost or um, visual integrity in, um, in CGI at the time. So things like uh, any natural phenomena like uh, f you know, flames and uh, waves and clouds and things by that time were all uh, working much better with CGI than in practical effects. Do you remember any particular moments where 
you were asked to do something that you just didn't think was possible, and what happened? Well, sometimes when they bit out the scripts to be able to be done, there really was no good, clean idea about how something would be done. And um, this group would have to do basic research, uh, some of which became research for that was used in uh, computer animation conferences afterwards on, uh, on how to actually accomplish an effect. Um, at the time, uh, issue Manji was done. Uh, uh, hair and fur was considered very, very difficult. Clothing was always considered very difficult to do. Uh, now you look at it and it can be simulated uh, rather easily, but uh, there's a lot of effort and a lot of years behind being able to uh, create convincing hair, fur, uh, skin. The, um, some of the uh, characters in trying to create super realistic characters that didn't straddle the uncanny valley where we, they looked human enough where it, your mind goes, well, that's human but not quite human. Uh, if it was truly alien, they were able to be well done. But if you're trying to create a really, truly human character in CGI back then, it came off with kind of mixed results. Um, uh, other studios tried it. Things like uh, Polar Express, uh, you know, gave it a good shot, and you can you can see it's, it's things don't look quite human. When you look at the new Star Wars movies. Um, after Disney's acquisition, what do you think of the new films? Uh, I, I've always enjoyed uh, the Star Wars franchises and the Star Wars series. Um, I'm also a big fan of uh, other science fiction as well, too, and the Star Trek series. As a matter of fact, it's really fun to yank the chains of uh, fans of one versus the other in appropriate moments. Um, I think they look, they look phenomenal. They have... Um, uh, some of them have bolder and more interesting storylines with characters. Uh, I think they've done an interesting job with um, kind of weaving the story together uh, post, you know, the, the films that I worked on uh, and kind of building out the universe. So uh, I, I generally find them enjoyable. You mentioned that at, in the very beginning um, that it's usually much more indicative what people or the stuff they do outside of work. And something I noticed that you like to do outside of work and at work is being a, for lack of a better term, a professional prankster. Could you tell us a little bit about how that started? Were you always like this? Uh, yeah, that's something I, su- I really enjoy, and it's a big part of who I am, uh, kind of helping me not live life on automatic uh, is very important. And furthermore, there was a point a few years ago where I kind of decided that one of the reasons I'm here is to help other people not live life on automatic as well and just maybe don't take for granted they know exactly how, how the world works. Uh, that is um, something that's been part of me from my uh, very earliest days. I have memories of my uh, father especially always doing things like that to uh, try to make me sort of question reality in kind of a healthy, interesting way and just make me think for myself. And um, I don't know that it was a really deliberate strategy on his place. I, I think it was um, just part of who he was and it became part of who I am as well. Uh, some of my uh, earliest memories, I remember my father uh, uh, telling, I was told him once, uh, he had told me that matchbox cars uh, uh, were made from full-size cars that had been put in a shrinking machine. And I saw a commercial on TV where they were offering $100 for uh, used 
cars uh, for scrap. And I remember asking him, I said, Dad, how can they afford to sell a Matchbox car for a dollar if you can get that's been shrunk from a full-size car if you could uh, buy, if you can get $100 for a scrap of a car? And he looked at me horrified. He goes, oh, my God, you didn't still believe that. I told you that when you were six. And, uh, you know, I should have known I was already, you know, a senior in college at that point. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, I, was, <laughs> I was much younger than that. Um, and then... Other times, uh, I think one of the best ones he had done to me as a as a kid was um, I was in my early twenties. I was walking through a museum in London, and I saw a uh, an exhibit of Picasso's most famous works in the room. And as I walked into the room, in twenty paintings surrounding uh, me in this room was a painting my mom painted, and I just my world just collapsed. I sat down on the bench kind of with my head between my hands going, there is a logical, reasonable explanation for why my mom's painting is hanging with all these Picassos. She's not really a painter in any form. So, And I remember walking up the stairs of my house when I was about 9 or 10 years old, and at the top of the stairs of one of my houses, a painting of a kind of a two-and-a-half-dimensional squashed blue vase. And I asked my father, who painted that? And he waved his hands over it. He goes, oh, your mom did that while she was in college. And it turned out, of course, it was just a print of a Picasso that I walked past for 10 years in my house thinking it was my mom's painting. So when I saw the original, I assumed that was her painting as well. So that's where I kind of get that um, streak from. And I certainly visited that uh, upon uh, others and my, my son as well. So When you think of pranks you've played or stuff you said are there any that you're particularly proud of or fondly good call uh i do have a couple that i'm super fond of um there they sometimes they can run a little visual so let me see if i can describe it in a way that might work here uh, i i told a woman on a flight that i was sitting next to once a couple years back that I had a, a rare medical issue that caused me to fall asleep with my eyes wide open. And she shouldn't be concerned about it. It was nothing to get my attention or wake up or tell the flight attendant, but it is something I like to let people know I have before I fly next to them. And of course, it wasn't true. I had just completely made that up. And so I waited for them to feed us and turn out the lights and make the plane really quiet and dark. And as I'm sitting next to this woman, uh, I kind of let my jaw hang loose and a little bit slack. And uh, and then I lift my head up because my head had been down because I had pretended I was asleep. And I opened my eyes super wide. I stared straight ahead. And I could tell that she was looking at me from the, my peripheral vision, even though I was looking straight ahead. And then I let my head just loll over and stare right at her off to the side in, in one quick movement. And uh, it was it was great. Yeah, she she was quite surprised i held it for just a second or two before we both started laughing that poor woman yeah it was great it was awesome has at any time these strokes of yours ever backfired where people just took it the wrong way um no i don't think i've had uh i don't i don't have i haven't had a really bad one i tried to do one uh in college where there was a restaurant that um had food named after famous people and they um I took a copy of a menu and I inserted my name as the name of one of the uh, dishes on their menu. And then I printed up a stack of menus and I brought them back into the restaurant. And then I grabbed a few menus and uh, brought them into the bathroom and tried to replace the actual menu with the menu with my 
name as one of the items. And just as I had the menus like open in front of me in the bathroom, the owner of the restaurant walked in, and he was not happy about that at all. Mm. So that's probably the worst backfire I've had, and even that wasn't too bad. It seems pretty good. It seems uh, like it would give you pretty impetus to keep going then. Sure. You mentioned at the beginning that currently you're running a department at the Department of Ideas at Amazon, and I know that a lot of the work you do is confidential, but for the parts that you can talk about, could you describe what you're currently up to? Yeah, we have uh, two parts, uh, both external and internal. Uh, it's about um, idea generation and connecting people to those ideas. Uh, so the internal part is an event called Think Big, which has run once per year. Uh, and it can uh, it's used to basically solicit new ideas ideas and uh, from Amazon employees and connect them to people inside the company and to recognize the value and importance of one of Amazon's leadership principles is to think big and your ideas should be big world-changing ideas sometimes in execution you have to think about the idea and scale it in a different way but at least as you're coming up with new ideas uh, the hope is that they're always going to be big and world-changing ideas uh, externally we run a program called Catalyst at UW and WSU, and that's about um, helping people get ideas off the ground uh, uh, at these universities through a grant program where uh, Amazon provides uh, a modest amount of funds to help uh, people associated with these universities get these programs off the ground. And the way that program is structured, uh, it's, uh, it can be anybody associated with the university. It doesn't even need to be um, a student. For the programs, for the university programs, um, throughout the years that you've been running it, are there any particular projects or ideas that stood out to you that you can talk about? Uh, the projects are actually displayed on catalyst.amazon.com. And I, in probably in the interest of uh, being... Uh, Who's your favorite child? <laughs> <laughs> There's always one. <laughs> uh, I, I, maybe best not to go there and say my favorite child. But uh, we're, uh, we've been really, we've been impressed what, uh, what people have been able to do and the resourcefulness of them uh, being able to uh, you know, bring new ideas into the world. And a lot of the ideas have, um, uh, have a really profound social good element as well. People thinking about problems in, in new or different ways. Um, there, was, uh, there was one that was interesting with a group that had noticed that um, needles will often get separated from vaccine bottles when they get um, distributed to third world countries. It's not so much a problem in the U.S. And so there's some question for why is this separation actually happen in the undercurrent of the of the feeling was that it was done um, for financial means that uh, the needles might have been resold off separated from the vaccine and of course if you don't have a clean needle to administer a vaccine uh, it can uh, it, you can basically introduce new diseases at the same time you're trying to cure an old disease right or another disease which if obviously defeats the point so what they've what this group has done is rather than try to figure out a super clever way to um, keep the needle with the vaccine they figured out a way to clean reusable needles that are have been reused through a special cap that was permanently attached to the top of the vaccine bottle that was called safety shot and i thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at a, a problem in a new way and sometimes that's all it takes i think ironically um 
having worked in technology, the more I work in technology, the more I appreciate the simple solutions, the ones that don't necessarily invent anything but solve a big problem. Um, one that I <coughs> really like is the, it's called the Dutch Reach, but um, it's this idea that one big problem uh, you have on the roads is people getting out of the cars and not looking at cyclists and totally um, nailing them as they're biking by the car. And so the Dutch Reach is when you are getting out of the car, you open the car with your right hand instead of your left hand, and doing that, you are forced to look behind you. And by just implementing that, you've reduced, they've been able to reduce um, drivers hitting cyclists by like 95%. Wow. So it's the simple stuff that I really like. Um, and I'm wondering, like, when you're looking at ideas, when people are pitching to you, what qualities are you looking for that make you think this is something worthwhile? Uh, well, that's a great, I think you put it a great way for finding uh, a direct, simple, but less than obvious solution for how to address something. Uh, somebody that uh, brings some new thinking or clear thinking to an existing problem is, is always a very positive quality. Uh, somebody that's going to, uh, uh, that has a passion for something that's uh, very much, uh, very much into something, uh, can, uh, will do a better job and they'll give it the 110% that, uh, they might not be able to do otherwise if they're just doing it to check off a box. I would like to see people who have an investment in the idea itself rather than just like the outcome. It's if somebody says, you know, and this doesn't, this isn't less so even for the programs I'm running, but just in normal conversations. If I meet like an owner founder and it's clear to me that 100% of their goal is they saw an opportunity and they're building it just so they can be able to sell off the company in some ways. Um, fine. I, I'm just not that personally interested in it. That's not somebody that I really want to have a conversation, invest in, you know, personally or financially. Um, they have to have some skin of the game for actually caring about the underlying problem in some way. I think something I've heard a lot in um, VC firms, or such as like Y Combinator, um, is that they have this talk about investing in the founders or investing in the people over the idea. Um, and this idea that you might have a great idea, but if you don't have the right person, then that's probably not going to succeed. But I'm wondering, like, how far you can take that is, like, if you have a terrible person, but the best idea in the world versus the greatest person and the worst idea in the world, um, how much do you bias on the person versus the idea? That's a... Uh, that's a great question, and I certainly have felt in some of these places where I'm evaluating um, ideas um, a sense that uh, some people are 100% all in on the strategy of investing in the person, and I respect that because I, I don't come from, although I've seen ideas and been around ideas for a long time, I don't consider myself a VC or have the background that would uh, directly enable me to you know, do that um, right right now. Um, so I do place a lot of emphasis that the fundamental idea has to be good and worth solving. That being said, there have been a few cases where someone comes in and we've seen that they have um, uh, such drive for understanding the problem space and idea. There are issues where we'll sometimes share to say, um, I don't 
think that's really going to work the way you think it is. But it doesn't actually cost us a lot of money to give them the money to experiment them, experiment and give them a little rope. And we could be we could be wrong. You know, maybe maybe they're being closer to the problem. They will be able to uh, circumvent that issue that we saw. So uh, that's a case where, because the amounts of money are relatively modest, uh, we we can give them a chance to uh, experiment and see whether they can transcend the challenges that seem to be prevent them from doing that idea. One more thing about ideas. So one of the Amazon leadership principles is think big. And this idea of small ideas are self-fulfilling and you really got to think much bigger to really uh, make an impact. But when I, And I think a criticism that's been leveled at Silicon Valley, and perhaps rightly so, over the last couple of years is that when you look at projects, when you look at the sort of startups that are coming, nobody's necessarily taking big bets. It's all incremental. It's food delivery services. It's stuff that you don't look at it and think, wow, it's a really big idea. There are some exceptions, like Elon Musk being the obvious example. But by and large, they haven't... uh, They don't seem to be many big bets. At the same time, though, when I look at some of the most influential technologies of her age, if you think about Twitter or Facebook, they didn't they didn't start off as big ideas. It's tweeting 140 characters. It's a social network. So I'm wondering, you know, at what point do you bias for thinking big when it seems like starting small can also end up going into something big? Yeah, that's... Um, there, I think we do have a little bit of cognitive dissonance in trying to reconcile that sometime uh, uh, in our society and culture. It's not just among companies. We obviously live in a very sequel-driven culture in everything, including uh, people. The movie industry gets that a lot, that the number of assets that we're willing to create that are just completely fresh and new and bold and different seems to be diminishing as a whole each year. Uh, so, uh, you, I, I guess if you're willing to plant all these seeds and on the hopes that, you know, one or more of them could become very large, then a very, very large collection of thinking small ideas, uh, may grow large, but I too subscribe to the theory that thinking small is, uh, unlimited is its own, um, it does create those limits. And I'm not so sure that even though the external message on some of those companies you represented had a small um, kind of play in how they were rolled out, um, it's not at all clear to me that the people that were behind the scenes in those uh, were thinking in a highly limited fashion at the time they came out. Uh, it be interesting to be a fly on the wall to hear what those conversations actually were. Yeah, uh, that is fair. When you look at the past couple of films you've seen and when you think about the state of digital effects or special effects today compared to when you were deeply embedded in the movie industry, um, what changes do you see? Where has the industry gone and how do you think it is now? Um, When I I left the, uh, the movie industry and special effects industry and I saw this... um, the interesting and amazing things were happening over in uh, in the internet at the time. Uh, I felt that the quality of the effects that were being produced were already approaching um, a very high quality of photorealism. 
and that there was a tendency at the time to say, let's do everything we're doing, but do it much, much faster. So there were frames from Star Wars that took uh, many, many hours per frame to render. Uh, and if you think of, you multiply that out, uh, 24 frames uh, a second, 60 f- frames per minute, 60 minutes per hour, you can imagine how much uh, horsepower is being uh, produced to be able to, uh, to make those frames. So... Um, so there was a tendency to see, like, let's take these amazing effects we're doing and make them faster and faster. And what's gone on in the hardware space for uh, uh, graphic processing units has been absolutely extraordinary. And people are producing imagery in video games that is completely unheard of at the time when I was doing uh, special effects. So, but that particular problem did not interest me as much. Um, the idea that I, and that theme kind of carries over onto my work. The idea that something is being done well, but let's do that same thing better. Um, I'm glad that there are people who are super passionate about that problem and are willing to invest in it. It's not the part of the problem I'm as invested in. So that was a big part of why I made uh, that jump as well over to uh, uh, to Amazon back then. Uh, I, I think that the um, where's really come into its own and now kind of has a renaissance is by making it faster it enables uh, computer animation to be used in places that were really so expensive to be completely unavailable uh, back then so we worked on virtual reality for instance it's you know it's been around for two decades or more um, it's there's really not a lot of new stuff in the basic concepts of virtual reality what but back then, when I was at Silicon Graphics, which was between the roles that we described, um, those stations, the stations that we built for the Aladdin ride down in Florida, were amazingly expensive. And we're able to produce those kinds of effects now for just a few hundred dollars. So the accessibility is what's made it so profound, and the cost still keeps dropping. So uh, that's really exciting because that creates whole new opportunities uh, for people to experience it. I wonder if it's something similar to, for example, deep learning, where most of the techniques for deep learning that we take today have already been discovered in the 80s. It's just that we don't have the hardware necessary to run it. And with computing having dropped by multiple orders of magnitudes, I'm wondering if we'll see the same sort of breakthroughs in digital rendering as we've seen in machine learning. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's, it's already there, and it's happening right in front of us. Are there any areas that you're excited to um, see advance? Like, is it, what do you think could be that new vista is it virtual reality is it super realistic animations um what do you think it might be uh i've i'm still i still have the computer graphics bug even after all these years uh i still uh, enjoy it and i a lot it's the part of who i am the uh i i'm very excited by both VR and augmented reality, and people will use the terms interchangeably. They're they're not the same thing. They don't represent. So, in augmented reality, the ability to uh, change uh, what we're seeing in the world and and augment it in some way has very exciting possibilities for how we navigate the world and how we interact with people. Uh, how we deal with accessibility. Um, there's also a really interesting area called diminished reality, where you actually take things out of the world uh, by uh, 
when you look through the lenses. And that also has interesting implications and even has social implications as well. Uh, what does it mean when we're actually taking things away from our visual world? And that has positive implications for uh, accessibility as well. So, so we live in a world that's just filled with huge amounts of visual noise. You know, Maybe um, dialing that down a bit would be healthy for us psychologically. I think of a real-life ad blocker. That would be amazing. Um, but I also think about when you say diminished reality and taking away things from a field of view, the first thing that made me think of is social media. And you know, one of the problems we have is the news feeds being highly personalized so that there are a lot of things we don't see, maybe opinions we don't agree with or facts that make us uncomfortable. And we're probably a long ways off before this happens, but I can imagine... For some reason, it's always really easy, a lot easier for me to imagine the dystopian futures yeah, yeah. that you have some in the future in this reality where you put on a headset and everything you don't want to see just disappears. And yeah. Well, the technology is, um, it doesn't care. The technology is uh, ecumenical, uh, not agnostic. A lot of people use that word incorrectly, actually. So it treats it all equally. So uh, your cell phone can be used for tremendous good. It can be used to call uh, for help and bring 9-11 to you know, any point on Earth. It can be used for also terrible things as well. It can be used uh, for um, you know, very bad purposes. So it's, it's not the fault of the cell phone. It's not even the fault of the people who provided the services or the technology around the cell phone. It's just who we are as people. Kevin Kelly, uh, who is the publisher at Wired, um, wrote a book called What Technology Wants and it had this really interesting premise where it said that at this point you can think of the technological um, output to be an organism, organism of its own and that it will want certain things not in the sense that it's sentient but in the same sense that plants will turn towards the sun for light so technology will want certain things like more power like miniaturization and that might be coupled with human wants as well but this underlying idea that we are part of something that we no longer necessarily have control of because the technology we created has certain wants that because us being human and also wanting some of the same benefits will go along with to wherever and this might lead to. Hmm. Yeah, it's hmm. a, uh, yeah, I, I, I think we're still, at least as of the time of making this podcast in uh, late 2018, we're still masters of, of that technology. And the technology is used, um, uh, and we embrace it for, uh, for as long as it serves us and it's useful. And when it's not, we, as a culture, we set it aside. Uh, you know, so one of my favorite uh, gags is with a group of people. I'll make an arrangement with all these people in advance, uh, so everybody's in on it except for the new person to walk up. Where at the end of the conversation, I'll say, "Hey, uh, you're really cool. Do you want to all link up on MySpace?" And then uh, everybody knows to say, start saying what their MySpace handle is, and the new person that walks up goes like, "What the heck is it? 1999?" And uh, you know, we just to again take them out of their comfort zone a little bit so uh you know we'll we used myspace until we didn't want to use myspace and then something else came along something better comes along and uh, i think that's kind of how we will uh will operate with uh technology as well 
That's fair. One of the key pieces of technology that you've been involved in is a uh, 3D rendering engine known as Maya. And I'm wondering for people who might not be familiar with it, could you describe what it is and what your involvement with it was? Sure, yeah. So uh, uh, I had actually, I started my career as, uh, you'd mentioned Lucasfilm at the beginning. And so I actually started with a group that was called the Lucasfilm Computer Division. And that group uh, was part of uh, 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 be, that group spun off to become Pixar. And so uh, I was involved with computer graphics and animation during that process in more of the rendering end, which is creating 3D rendered final images from animations and models. Uh, when I left that group, I went to a company called Wavefront Technologies in Santa Barbara, California, which is still one of the nicest places I will have ever lived. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what was going through my mind when I left there. Uh, but at that place, uh, that company had already made um, some very high-end computer animation systems that sold for anywhere between seventy to two hundred thousand dollars, seventy thousand to two hundred thousand dollars, and took anywhere between ten thousand dollar to three hundred thousand dollar computers to run on. So think about how much it would cost to start doing computer animation during that time frame. Uh, so. Uh, that company had been around for a while, and as they started to um, look at next-generation software when I had joined, I built some prototypes for what a next-generation of animation system could look like. And so I had moved from doing rendering, which was computing the final images, to doing the animation, which was sort of one step earlier in that food chain. And uh, I had the fortune to work with some amazing folks at uh, Santa Barbara Studios and, and to be able to uh, produce an animation and a kinematics engine that could do in really interesting physically based animation and to do kinematics which will let you uh, move uh, uh, bodies uh, and shapes that had skeletons inside them in natural ways and those systems we brought together it was called Dynamation and Kinemation at the time and they formed the foundation of uh, a, a new uh, core of animation system uh, when Wavefront combined with a company called Alias, that became uh, a product called Maya. And uh, at the time, Maya was uh, really still targeted for the high-end computer animation group for film and television, but it continued to get invested and had huge amounts of investment from those companies and was eventually acquired back by Silicon, by acquired by Silicon Graphics. And uh, they as the, which was eventually acquired by Autodesk, a lot of changes in, in that space. Uh, they, uh, they continued to invest in that, and now it's used for lots of things. It's used for industrial design. It's used for computer-aided design for modeling. It's still used for computer animation for film and video and television uh, and advertisements. used for uh, military, so it's become a very versatile and complicated package. For people who might not be immersed in the world of rendering and studio graphics. What were challenges that you had to overcome when making Maya? Like, why are all these people interested in using it? And are those still the same challenges that people who do studio rendering today face? Hmm. Uh, with the caveat that it has been some time where I've been immersed with it, into it day to day, uh, I'll answer. Uh, uh, some of the challenges were uh, animation back then was very um, 
was very direct. Uh, you basically you created systems in in uh, in models, and then you told them how you wanted them to move. Sometimes very precisely, like literally where you want them to move in space, at which velocity, how you wanted them to rotate, what materials should be on them. Uh, over the years, this was happening back then. Has continued to invest. Uh, the animators have been able to move up um, one. Uh, step kind of in the food chain and kind of direct motion in a little higher level way like maybe you still need to articulate a skeleton uh, somewhat at some some level but you're able to direct it like how you want it to walk from point A to point B you don't actually have to direct each footfall each pad each motion of every finger you know exactly Uh, and the systems can actually do that for you in some degree I'm thinking it's like SQL versus strictly procedural logic. Uh, yeah, I guess that, that's an interesting way to look at it. That being said, some of the very best animation and some of the most highest animation, and when you really see it, that just is absolutely beautiful. A lot of that stuff is done still uh, very, very much by hand. Uh, and to be clear, it's um, and it's the artist is really the key behind it. These tools can actually be uh, relatively primitive and as long as the artist is able to create um, uh, an amazing uh, uh, work, it'll shine through those tools. I remember at the time at uh, at Pixar when we were interviewing people uh, I had spoken with John Lasseter there and we were looking at incoming resumes and some people even back then were submitting resumes uh, in uh, works through uh, showing what computer animation tools they were looking at and they largely didn't pay a lot of attention to it in my opinion uh and john said uh that we could teach people how to use the tools we couldn't teach them how to become an artist so um so they were fine submitting stuff with pen and ink and chalk drawings i hear something similar about um the describing entrepreneurs like you can teach good entrepreneurs about the technology or about shifting them towards different ideas it's really hard to give somebody that same mindset yeah i i give that advice i give when i i've interviewed a lot of people for uh for amazon and for many other companies before that and when i see these resumes that are filled with just buzzwords of names of tools and things like that some people really feel like that's the way to go um that never really worked for me and indeed i found it some of something of a turnoff um uh because you're not really a master of like hundreds of dozens of tools anyway so what are you trying to communicate when you put you know two dozen tools on there that isn't what you're trying to sell yourself in a job seeking situation in my opinion yeah i i've also noticed a couple of red flags while doing interviews of um i find for example when i see like 12 years of enterprise Java experience at a single company, it's usually what I find is not that people have 12 years of Java experience, they have the first year of Java experience competed 12 times. Um, and <laughs> they've just never moved on from that point. Right, right. Over the course of you doing interviews, have there been other red flags that you've noticed or heuristics that you use to tell how candidates might be? Uh, oh, that's a great question. Let me think about that for a minute. Uh, the the one where uh, uh, I remember very early on when I first became a manager prior even to coming to uh, Amazon, I, I saw somebody that had put um, a dozen 
expertises on their resume for things and they uh, and I looked at it and I go like they'd written that they were an expert in all these things and I said really you're an expert on this he goes yeah yeah so I said wow I said I've been doing this for a couple of years and I'm older than you and I've only become an expert in a very small number of these things so I really only feel equipped to ask you a really hard question in one or two of these um, before I ask you that hard question, are there any of these that maybe you're really not an expert in and you don't want to take a hard question in? <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't have done it except that person was really arrogant about that whole thing. And I just wanted to see, like, tell, tell me what you really think you're actually uh, good at. So. And then did they whittle down the number to he? Uh yeah, they it, it got a little bit waffly after that. That's a good check. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put that in my pocket for sure. So speaking of Amazon, you've been at Amazon for a long time. I believe you're approaching 20 years very soon. And very few people in the company have been here for that long. That leads me to the question of what you're still doing here. What has kept you at Amazon for nearly two decades now? Uh, I... I've been super fortunate, Kevin, in that I've always had incredible, fun, cool people and projects to work with. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. And I really uh, give that advice a lot to people, that who you work with is, in a lot of ways, is even far more important than what you're doing. It's nice to have both, and you should obviously hope to seek both. But um, I've always found uh, this being at the beginning of this incredible transformation, super exciting. Uh, I've, um, I've always enjoyed our mission in terms of, um, uh, you know, I've, I've never liked physically waiting for things or waiting in line for anything. I've always thought that, um, uh, like in airports, for instance, you should have two lines at airports. Um, uh, people who have their act together and people who don't, you know, and then if you get to the front of the line for people who have their act together and you don't have your act together, they say, sir, you need to get back to the back of the line. I would yeah. actually put it more emphatically than that, but the family audience, right? So, um, so the idea that, uh, that we're helping people get, um, a very wide selection of products, we're telling them enough information so they can make a super educated decision about these project products and we're getting to them at a fair price, and we're getting them quickly so they can spend their time and their money on other things. It's just something that's resonated with me from the earliest days. And then as we've grown and we've taken on um, all these other, uh, ventured into all these other revolutionary areas, uh, that feeling has only amplified. So it's a very cool mission, and I still enjoy coming into work. Um, I always call it my, I have what I call my, uh, my uh, four Mondays rule, uh, where if you wake up on four Mondays in a row, you wake up and you checkpoint your first feeling when you open your eyes. And if your first feeling is, you know, I would prefer not to go to work today, then if that happens to you four Mondays in a row, it's time for you to find a new job and it's time for you to find a new opportunity. Uh, and one Monday isn't enough, two Mondays isn't enough. Uh, the reason you do a couple of them is because everybody has ebbs and flows in every job. But honestly, if you're doing four Mondays and you're still not looking forward to coming to work, you find something else. And I've been fortunate that um, when I've felt that feeling, there's always been something uh, super fun for me, either 
you know, prior to Amazon or at Amazon. So, when you do end up deciding that you want to do something different, and I know you mentioned that one of the things you look for is you know working with the right people and doing, but looking at the work that you do, and you've done work in so many different fields from movies to Kindle. Uh, are there any general themes or um, motivations that tie your work together? Or is it more of thinking about an opportunity that looks interesting at the moment and diving into that, and then after that's done, doing another, another thing? Yeah, that's a quite good, good question, one that I've thought about a lot. And uh, I think everybody wants likes the idea that somehow there's some thematic uh, tie-in, and that would obviously be very cinematic and go along with you know, my background as well. I think I like to be at the beginnings of things. That's the part that's interesting, is as the ideas are being formed and gelled and delivered. And um, that seems to come up a few times. And the idea that something is... Um, now it works. Now it works for 100 people or 1,000 people. Let's make it work for you know, a million people or 10 million people. That part of the problem, in all candidness, does not interest me as much. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm grateful that there are people that love and live for that problem because we need to have that as well. But, um, and it's sort of interesting because in a lot of ways uh, we have a very uh, core competency around scale and so we have a lot of those people. But in order to get scale, you have to have that first step as well. So that's the part that I engage with at all my positions. Um, you know, for instance, when I left um, ILM, you know, uh, we were had, had done a few Star Wars films. We'd done Men in Black. We've done Jurassic Park. We've done that. We've just finished Speed Two, and it didn't seem uh, special effects were great for that film. Film maybe not so much. It didn't seem like. You know, what was the angle? Stay around so I could do speed three. It was time to try a new adventure. So one thing that you look for is having people that you can work with. And oftentimes, though, you might not necessarily get a good chance to figure out what sort of people you're working with until you're in the job. Is there anything that you do ahead of time, like talking to the manager and the manager's manager or trying to hang out with the team to give you a feeling of how the people you work with might be like? Uh, yeah, there's, there's things that you can learn about an environment before you join the environment that can give you at least some direction. Uh, sometimes you can even learn them in the interview itself. Um, uh, I, had, I had one, t- one interview um, uh, uh, earlier in my career where the politics of the organization came out very heavily in the interview. And that seated two, and it was a very senior role at this company. And it was clear that they were looking for me to help um, bridge or transcend or maybe fix these politics in some ways. And um, it created two conflicting feelings in me. The first was that, wow, this company is so honest with me and so direct that they're willing to tell an interview candidate how serious the politics are within this company. Uh, and the second, which was much worse, was that the politics in this company are so bad that they can't even actually hide it from an interview candidate, right? So, uh, yeah, needless to say, I didn't, I didn't take that one. Uh, there are other cultural tr- things that are very... I, I interviewed at one company where 
I came in. It was a late in the afternoon on a uh, Friday, and people were um, dressed pretty nicely, nice shirts and uh, jackets and things like that, but no ties or tops. Or uh, And it was a technology company. And I wasn't going to wear a tie to work. There was no situation where I would wear a tie to work. And I remember t- telling my interviewer, saying, hey, uh, um, it's good you guys don't have to wear ties. And he goes, yeah, our boss lets us take off our tie at 4 p.m. on Friday. And I laughed. I thought that was hilarious until I realized he wasn't actually joking. <laughs> they actually did wear ties for all the previous hours of the work week. Um, yeah, speaking with your friends that are at the company can be helpful. Uh, you can speak with people who left. Uh, you should take that with a grain of salt because you can't know, you know, uh, intimate details about you know the circumstances of why they left but it is just a data point for you to take into account so before uh, talking to you I did some research and I talked to um, a mutual friend of ours uh, Nathan who he mentioned and he said I could quote him directly that you love Pecky and <laughs> that you have a room full of Pecky paraphernalia and for people who aren't familiar, Pecky is an internal mascot at Amazon. And uh, HP, I wonder if I could get you to describe your feelings about Pecky um, right now. Just uh, can I take the fifth on Pecky? Yeah, <laughs> that is an option. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah, Pecky. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> we'll leave the rest unsaid. Um, something else Nathan brought up, which I th- thought is really relevant to your earlier uh, line about hating inefficiencies. He also brought up that you really hate inefficiencies. And he talked about an incident uh, when you were at a conference about efficiency where people uh, were lining up for lunch and maybe not the most optimal way. And you did something to yeah, rectify yeah. that. Could you describe that? Oh, my God. I see this all the time. This drives me up a wall. I, I will literally, within the same conversation, I will be at a, uh, hear a technology uh, speech on you know, highly efficient databases or highly efficient uh, you know, new breakthroughs in computing and things. And then there will be applause and say lunch is served. And the lunch will be pushed all against the wall of the place and there'll be a long snaky line of people trying to get fed and what a limited amount of time they give us for food this is usually at conferences i see this but i've seen it elsewhere as well and i it just drives me crazy so what i will do is marshal a few people and i will pull the tables two feet away from the walls and with that 30 second investment in time i will double the throughput through those lines uh and everybody Cheers, and we get our food twice as fast. But yet, the very next conference, all the food's pushed against the wall again. Uh, it's there's no. Uh, I mean, I guess it's not the same people doing the efficiencies that are setting up the food, but still, I I think that is a pretty easy life lesson to pick up. It's a sometimes Sisyphean task where you push a boulder up the mountain just to see yeah. it come down every single time. I guess the positive part of that is like you know. I get to make that breakthrough over and over again. So right. Something else I've been told is not to play werewolf against you. And I'm wondering why I should not play werewolf against H.B. Seagull. Uh, yeah, so werewolf is a super fun game. Uh, it's, there's some question about the origin and history of it, but somewhere back in the 70s or 80s, this game uh, is... Uh, uh, 
a bit of a murder mystery type of game where you gather a group of 10 to 13 people uh, at, a, at a party or event. You put them in a room together. Uh, you identify two of the people secretly as werewolves. And there's a moderator that um, directs the flow of uh, the game. And over the course of the game, the werewolves are one by one trying to kill the other players. And the remaining you know, 9 to 11 players are trying to identify who among them are werewolves and out them and kill them before all the, uh, the players are killed. The non-werewolf um, players are called villagers. So the villagers are set against the werewolves. Uh, typically, there's another character as well that's a psychic that um, gets learned some one piece of true information every turn, and that's how new information is introduced in the game. So you have these competing factions in the game, and the game is very fun to play. Uh, it's, uh, it can be a little bit of a challenge to gather this good group, but it's well worth the trouble. Um, and... Uh, in 99.99% of the games, the werewolves are secretly banded together to take out all the other players. And it's that suspicious behavior that will often out the werewolves to the villagers, like people who are unnaturally allies, because nobody has any real information about each other except for the werewolves who know each other, who each other are. So if other players notice that two players are defending themselves um, too much, that can be considered very suspicious. So um, I introduced a tactic many, many years ago uh, that I really have not used very much, but I did use it uh, to great effect on a particularly legendary game where, as one of the werewolves, I deliberately outed the other werewolf early in the game. And, of course, they were horrified, and uh, immediately, I immediately earned the trust of all remaining other villagers in the game. Because you know I've, that's obviously the gold standard. I've found a werewolf and I've I've killed them. Uh, what they didn't know or expect is the reason that I was so confident that that other person was a werewolf because I was also a werewolf, and I managed to run the whole table and take out the whole rest of the game. And so since then, it's been very hard to play because uh, uh, yeah, it's been hard to earn back that trust. <laughs> I guess sometimes you have those strategies that are you can play them once. But yes, you really got to pick your moment. Yes, I did. Have there been parallels in real life where you've been able to employ your werewolf skills? Oh, no, no. I'm completely trustworthy and above board in real life, so that's ne- that would never have come That's up. right. You you would never speak anything that is not the absolute truth and nothing but the truth. That's, that's absolutely correct, Kevin. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Um, you are on the board of the Unexpected Productions Theater, uh, which is an improv theater here in Seattle. How did you end up there? How did you get involved in the theater? Oh, um, I had a, a kind of a, a moment several years ago where I decided to throw a bunch of really difficult things on my bucket list for uh, personal behaviors and just see if I could uh, invest in myself. One was to take improv courses and actually perform improv on stage. The second was to do stand-up comedy. And the third was to sing at an event in Seattle called Love City Love. Mm. And I kind of rated them in terms of difficulty. So improv was, uh, I considered the, for me, as it could be different for anybody, was considered the easiest level. Uh, You're up there, usually with other people. 
the other people are really there to support you and make you look good, uh, which is one of the things that they taught in the courses. Uh, I took all their courses, uh, the whole series of courses at the time they were offered. Uh, it was they were great fun. They were very approachable. They started with almost I would almost say like almost like party games uh, that you play. Uh, and then they advanced up to you know serious uh, improv skills, uh, and I, I took all the courses and I performed a bit with them on some of their uh, productions, and uh, I know you perform as well there, Kevin, quite a bit, and uh, and uh, it was it was fine. It was, it was some adventurous moments here, so I crossed that bucket list off. And then at some point, they approached me and asked if I wanted to be a board member. So I took that to mean that they were uh, much more enchanted by my business skills than my improv skills. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was uh, that's been fun, and uh, it's a it's a really great theater, and it's well worth checking out uh, the shows they have there. What are the responsibilities of a board member? What do you do there? The uh, the board operates at a, a somewhat uh, strategic level for. The theater, as opposed to a um, an operational level, uh, there's a, a strong operational staff there that takes care of the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. But there are decisions based upon um, larger investments that the theater might want to make about, you know, new performance spaces or trends or directions for the theaters or how to how to grow or change or. Uh, you know, uh, uh, demographics or accessibility of the theater, uh, capital improvements for the theater, so uh, and just generally its presence in Seattle. So the board would get involved with uh, working with the staff on making improvements and changes in those directions. For people who might never have seen improv and maybe are curious, are there any shows? that you would recommend that they might get started with? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, I think my personal favorite of all the shows are the late shows on Friday and Saturday night. They start about 10.30, which is no kidding around. Uh, uh, you can, uh, I like those especially for new people because they're extremely fast-paced. They, they, you get to see a whole variety of different improv techniques in one show. They're always very different, so you can go see the same show. I mean, improv by its nature is always different every show anyway, but um, there's no overarching theme that carries them uh, uh, you know, week, week by week. Uh, the earlier shows are a lot of fun as well uh, on those nights of the week. The theater is actually show, has shows most nights of the week. Um, if uh, uh, I would start with the Friday some of the Friday and Saturday night shows, and I, I think y- your your audience would get a big kick out of those. Yeah, um, and if you're particularly adventurous, there's also the Wednesday night duos. The Wednesday night duos, yes, uh, yeah, you can tell us about those, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. So the Wednesday night duos, it's an open mic where anybody can go on stage, and by anybody, I mean anybody, because I've been on stage multiple times there. Um, and it's one, so Jay Hitt, who's the director of, uh, who's the managing director at Unexpected, he hosts the show and he does a much better job at describing it than I do. Um, I've also had him on this podcast. So he, um, if you wanted to learn more about UP, you can also listen to that podcast. Um, but on Wednesday nights, uh, you have all sorts of people. You have veterans, people who've been doing this for years, and sometimes people who have just walked off the street. It's a great time. You just never know what you're going to expect. 
Yeah, I I, I think it's a that market is a that market theater is a lot of fun and uh, it's it's well worth it. And it's iconic. They've been running those shows here for a very long time, and uh, uh, Kenton, Randy, and Jay have done a great job with creating uh, cohesive shows. And depending on when you listen to this. Uh, uh, you know the Christmas Carol might be playing, which is always a hit. They always do themed shows around uh, holidays and events, and around Comic Con, and um, people get very passionate, very much behind those. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If you were to start over your career again today, um, let's say that you've just graduated from college and the whole world is your oyster, and you could do anything that you wanted, how might you approach it now? I ended up doing undergrad. I ended up doing computer science and electrical engineering. Um, I only ended up using parts of the electrical engineering degree day to day, but I thought it was an interesting discipline in there. Um, I've post-graduation and sort of just in life, I've found books I've read on philosophy very interesting. And that would have been fun to slip in a few of those courses as well. And I've thought about trying to do those in continuing education Way I actually was friends with a philosophy professor from Seattle U, and I told him my interest. And he goes, here, let me give you a couple of books from my course. And he dropped these like thick philosophy books in front of me, and I found them pretty unapproachable. <laughs> so, uh, you know, probably a little more discipline in the ramp-up to do that. But um, I feel pretty good about the options that I, I took in there, and I think they led to an interesting path. I, I don't see that I would do um, a big over on on pretty much any of those uh, professional choices. Yeah, things seem to have worked out pretty well. and I've been very fortunate. I've been, I've been fortunate to be at the right place at the right time and be able to recognize some good trends and be surrounded by cool people. Yeah. Well, speaking of timing, we're approaching the end of the show, and I'd like to wrap up with some of my closing questions, which I ask all my guests. And my first question is, what is something that has inspired you recently? This could be a book. It could be something you've seen. It could be events from the world. Um, I end up... The thing that inspires me the most, and I've come back, is how many life lessons I picked up from a book called The uh, Phantom Tollbooth. Hmm. And I've ended up buying that as a gift uh, multiple times and uh, find myself thinking a lot about passages from that book. Uh, it's a book written by Norton Juster um, in the 70s, I think. Uh, and it's uh, it's got beautiful illustrations by Jules Pfeiffer. And it's about a little boy that doesn't kind of realize how magical the world is around him. And it's filled with you know kind of a little callback there with almost like philosophy lessons. Of, um, but in a, a really approachable, whimsical way. And so uh, I keep coming back to that book. Um, the other one um, I, I like a lot is a concept called The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz about how we live in a world inundated with options and choices and how uh, paralyzing that can be for many people and that there are tools to uh, help us make choices and understand how we how we make choices in life and why that should be because it's not obvious at all like it seems obvious that having more choices is always better but it turns out it may not be actually and that one of the ways we might be able to increase our happiness is by taking proactive measures to um, 
restrict our choices somewhat to a set that we're comfortable with and we're manageable. I found that one of the more liberating times in my life was the year when I decided to be vegetarian, and this was in Houston, Texas, and <laughs> as context. You're, you're not, and you not want to make things easy on yourself, are no, you, No, but it actually did make things easy, because if I would walk into a restaurant, there would be like one food option for me, and so it was never difficult picking dinner, because there were no choices. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And as far as philosophy, um, I think some of the books on philosophy, at least I count them as books on philosophy that have impacted me, are children's books, or books such as Calvin and Hobbes, where despite their apparent simplicity, there are so many lessons you can learn from just everyday life. And you know, a father talking to his kid about how the way works and might not work. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, I made kind of a um, a deep change over you know, the last 10 or 15 years where I really worked to become more extroverted. And uh, uh, I, th- I think that there is something that you can change in that regard. Um, it may not be a quality you're innately born with. And that uh, there's something you can learn from everybody when you talk to them. So I make it a point when I'm not scaring people like on airplanes to talk to the person next to me and see if there's something we can learn from each other during that during that flight and, or, or from out and about. And so if somebody doesn't want to talk to you, they will they will let you know you, as long as you're sensitive to those vibes. But um, you never know what you're going to pick up. I think um, that's a really good philosophy right there. My next question, what is something unusual or something that people might not know about you? Uh, in 2013, I participated in one of the world's largest scavenger hunt. That's pretty fun. 25,000 people participated in that, and I had a team of people, and we completed hundreds of challenges and won a trip to an exotic international destination, uh, Vancouver. British Columbia. <laughs> it can be exotic if you live in Iceland. Well, we did. We, 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 had, we had a couple members of my team from Australia, so for them that was that was very exotic. So for the folks on the team that were from Vancouver, they were a little less than a chance, but still it was super fun to win. Um, highly recommend that that event's called Gish, Greatest Internet Scavenger Hunt, and it's definitely well worth participating in. What was the hardest, or uh, your most proudest achievement in that scavenger hunt? There were so many weird things in that scavenger hunt, and I participated in a few years. So some of these things, uh, some of these things get tied together a little bit in my head for the various years. Um, I think the one that uh, I enjoyed making the most was I had to do make a bicycle-powered blender, and then get dressed in an '80s aerobic uniform, and then film a video with '80s music about using this bicycle-powered blender. And I laser-cut some pieces, and I attached them to an old exercise bike and put a blender, and I tied it all together with zip ties. And we got it going with my teammates, and we filmed the thing, and it literally shredded itself to pieces the moment the video was finished. It disintegrated right there in a very cinematic fashion. That's almost poetic. It was. It was good. And this, of course, begs the question, are there videos available online? (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, there may or may not be videos of those online. Uh, this year we did it, and we had to film a, uh, a belly flop competition, and we had to do a, a, a water ballet. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm going to leave it to you to see if those videos may or may not be available. Okay. Sounds good. My next question, is there some sort of principle or belief that you live your life according to? Yeah, not answering that question. Yeah, <laughs> not answering <laughs> dumb questions. <laughs> uh, I don't think I have an overarching belief. Yeah, and maybe, this might not be an overarching one, but just yeah. if you pick out one among the bag of different beliefs and ideas you have. Uh, I like to think of every day as an opportunity for a fresh start and to, uh, you know, not dive backwards too much and to really look at opportunities to kind of think, think freshly. Yeah. So, yeah. More steps forward than backwards. Yeah. My very last question before I let you go. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about now or highlight? Yeah, I think we're good. All right. Well, in that case, HP, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me once again. Uh, thank you for having me, Kevin. Always a pleasure. I have enjoyed your work. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again with a few more words before you go. First of all, if you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, you can do so by leaving me a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. Otherwise, until next time, hope you have some great conversations.